Okay, well, welcome to Coffee and Poets. My name is Tim Call. We're here with uh, Kathleen Lynch on 11th and H. Every third Sunday, we have Coffee and Poets, and the prime mover and shaker behind this series is Ensa'a, otherwise known as, oh, maybe it's a mystery. Maybe I'll just let you figure out who the real person is behind this. But uh, I'm really uh, glad to be part of this series. I've listened to a number of these uh, previously online, and uh, I hope uh, if you're tuning in online that you will experience the same frivolity and informative discussion that you normally find. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing and talking to uh, Kathleen Lynch today. Kathleen, you want to jump in there and see if your mic works? I'm sure it does. Does my mic work? Yeah, there it is. Okay. We're in good shape. Uh, so we're going to just have a little conversation. I'll try to kick things off here with a couple questions. Any opening remarks, Kathleen? Or I hadn't thought of opening remarks, but I actually will tell you this strange thing that's been happening to me. Vis-a-vis yeah. -vis poetry, right? There's so much of it out there, yeah. and I have actually started to feel somewhat like a curmudgeon oh, okay. about the proliferation of it, even okay. though I know it's good for people to be doing it. Right? Maybe it's because Facebook on Facebook you see so much. It is, you know, quite a bit present. Just coming back from AWP last week uh, to say that poetry is everywhere or was everywhere in Minneapolis would be an understatement. Right. And uh, I have mixed feelings about it, but there's a question I have that's geared towards that that maybe we can get okay. into that later Good. on. All right. So uh, why don't I start out with a you know typical kind of craft question, all right? It should be a softball that you can just hit out of the park here. Pain cheater. <laughs> Pain cheater, by the way, is, uh, is the safe word here. So if it comes up, then uh, you'll know that we need to digress. But I'm going to plow right on through anyways. Some poets reliably start with a vague abstraction, some with a phrase clipped from somewhere, a speech, reading, other media. Some start with an image, some with a cluster of sounds, some with a narrative thrust. Which of these, or maybe some other thing, do you find most often is the initial spark for you? Most often, it's a sense that something's stirring in me, and I, I let it brew and come come to me verbally, but it's at first it's a feeling like okay. something's coming, so not necessarily something great, but yeah, <laughs> something right. coming. Um, but I do have poems that just I I have to write. They're just I, I think I brought one of them, uh, which I might read later. But uh, I do the crossword puzzles faithfully. The New oh, York okay. Times, and, and sometimes if I'm trying to find a way to come up with new work, I will g give myself an assignment that like number 11 across number, before I do it, yeah. six down, 11 across, and 42 across, that whatever those words are, I'm going to put those together okay. in a poem. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a scramble of words, yeah, kind a, of the dictionary game type of thing where you pick five words and a see grab bag, A grab bag, a grab bag. And that's just to keep me going, and yeah. often nothing comes of it, but... Um, well, I think a lot of times it does. When I've, when I've uh, taught in classroom or non-classroom settings, sometimes to get you know, people writing outside of their kind of self-conscious limiting brain, you have them come up against these kind of random starting points. And a lot of times it frees them to take their imagination and go in a lot of different directions. So that seems you know, absolutely perfectly valid to me. So uh, 
but oftentimes you find you discount that work because it's just too, you know. I discount anything I write that no matter how I strive to make it good, I find it to be mediocre. Yeah. And um, I actually think I could go back and, and redo several of the poems in my book by 30%. Sure. Uh, but I'm always editing. I have a very editor okay. editor's head kind of thing, and I edit other people's poems when I'm reading them too. Right. In my head, I think, why didn't you just leave the the out of there? You've got too many thes, and but I, it's just an impulse. Yeah. So you're you're kind of a, a meticulous <laughs> editor then, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I. Um, I'm a bitch. <laughs> you're a bitch on yourself and on uh, others. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm right. as bad to myself as ever. Well, yeah, I mean, do you find that, you know, uh, alcohol helps this bitchiness process or something? Or No, no. it makes me too stupid. too stupid. I mean, I yeah. might have a glass of wine or something, but right. when I'm getting into it and writing, or especially editing, um, I'm not drinking. Yeah. I do like to drink. I, yes. like, I like my drink. Right, but. right. <laughs> right. No, I, I would expect you to say nothing less, absolutely. Uh, all right, well... Maybe I will jump over into this editing question I have, which is kind of, you know, we got a sense of a little bit a second ago of how you, you know, at least in conversation, one of the reasons I want to be here with you today is because you have a tendency to say what's exactly on your mind. You know, I, I like to refer to it as a kind of delightful frankness uh, and explicitness, even sometimes venturing into the body and outrageous. B-A-W-D-Y? B-A-W-D-Y, mm -hmm. yes, body. Can I still, can I use that term or is that? No, like you can to... totally use it. Okay. I, I feel complimented. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was meant as a compliment. Uh, yet sometimes, in my opinion, uh, on the page, this persona doesn't really come out, especially in Hinge, I would say. Uh, and I w your, your poems seem to be kind of more even-tempered and circumspect. Uh, is that due to your editing process where you kind of try to filter out that more outrageous persona? Or are you just conscientious and fastidious about the type of lady that you are projecting? I'm a proper lady. <laughs> no, Hinge is actually a compilation of poems that are were written over 25 years. Yeah. And I, I'm not a poet who writes to a theme. So right. I don't I don't like the, oh these are all oh. my divorce poems these are all my I'm dead mother you poems that. you know yeah. so I, it was hard for me to put them together and because many of them are quite a bit older um, they're a little less outre right, than right, right. my newer work right right well you know when you're you're still trying to play it pretty close to the chest when you're younger I think yeah as you get older you care less. So. Also, there's an impulse in, in me because I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, all high verbal, you know, seven kids, two parents, and um, there's a, a very big storytelling impulse in sure. me, and yeah. I, I have to calm myself down away from the story sometime. Yeah, well, you know, quite frankly, when I asked that first question about craft, I was, I was thinking that there was a narrative thrust that was going to be the spark for a lot of your poems, but it's interesting that you said it was more of an emotive place that you start from. Which is, is very strange for me because I, you know, typically don't start from that place at all. In fact, as I think about it more and more, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, in your poetry, I think, this, do you think you aim more to invite intimacy or to evoke curiosity? And you think that these two things are necessarily polar opposites 
Uh, are they more female or more male strategies? All of the above of the and above. more. I don't, I don't have an agenda when I write. I, I, I have, I'll see if I can find it. I have one poem that I, I found the other day. I wrote it in 2007, completely forgot about it. And it's just a really straightforward, this is what happened kind of thing. Fact, okay. uh, maybe I'll start. What, with let's it. start. I totally forgot that I even wrote this poem because yeah. I had gone to give a reading in Santa Cruz, and um, I'd planned to drive home that night from Santa Cruz. Right. Horrible migraine. Okay. So I thought I am I can't drive like this, there. so I have sure. to just check into a hotel. There were all the hotels that were sort of nice looking were full, so I ended up in a very seedy place. And then I wrote this on the back of a brochure in the you in the mean room. You stayed in a CD place, or I, you just brought, I, oh, I no, thought, I okay. stayed there. Right. So, right. migraine logic. So the motel window won't latch shut. So I'm on the ground floor, and it's midnight, and I'm a woman alone. And the clerk called this part of town dicey as he slid my card back under the grill and returned to his barred private quarters. So cigarettes stink, so a room sick with reek, and oh, perfect, the toilet seeps and gurgles. Come on in and kill me. Come hack my head off with a machete. Stuff it into a sack. You carry this pain out of the room and into your gangster fucked up life. I promise not to hurt you. Promise not to furl a curse of pain you can't shake. Come on. Come on, come on, baby. I can hardly wait. Wow. Uh, it, it sounds to me like you, that, that was an uplifting uh, moment there then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like when you hurt that bad, you just, it's like, kill yeah. me. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it reminds me, uh, you know, I've got a thing uh, about Cormac McCarthy right now where his sense of brutalism about the world is something that, if I get to that place, I feel very... Uh, how shall I say, you know, not terribly good about the world at large. And it seems to me like you were, you were able to enter into that space to a certain extent. Yeah. And you, I even forgot I had written it probably because right. of well, the no, migraine. Because I, I suspect if you're like me, you, that's a place mentally and emotionally you don't really want to go to. So you may have blocked it in that regard, too. Mm -hmm. You know, same yeah, but people keep telling me Cormac McCarthy's a genius, so I guess I'll have to believe them at some point along here or be left out of my time. People tell me Ezra Pound was a genius, and yeah. I don't like that work, so. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. know I'm not very fashionable in that sense. Right, well, you know, Ezra belongs to a different century, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, that reminded me about, uh, you know, if there are other spaces that you think that when you're writing that you have trouble or, or that you don't necessarily just feel comfortable in going to when you're, when you're there? There are some I feel, and this is just a sort of my moral stand on it, there are things that happen that everyone says, you should write about that, yeah. and I feel it would not be the right thing. Right. right. Even though it's a fascinating story. Right. But you know. Yeah, and you're certainly not going to talk about them here today, then, are you? I'd, I'd love to, yeah. but not right. on the not, air. Not, not, not yeah. public, yeah. Well, I, I ran into somebody at AWP this time around, and I won't mention who this person's name is, but 
we're sitting there talking. We're both exhausted on Saturday, and he reveals to me, oh, yeah, you know, early on in my career, I, you know, I slept with J.D. Salinger's wife for four months. And I'm like, oh, really? I'd love to hear that story. So, oh, no, that's, that's off the record. I can't. I was like, come on. You, you, yeah, you just told me. Come on. You know, what the heck? Okay. But, but I think he made his point was is that I, that is, you know, I can tell you right here and now because we're swapping stories, but it's just not for public consumption. And I guess that's what you're talking about, too. Right. But there are usually things like family stuff. Um, I will tell you, m my famous sexual event was mm -hmm. that I had sex with Richard Brodigan. Oh, okay. Well, sh <laughs> I can't top that. No way. No how. Well, he wouldn't have wanted you. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure that's, uh, that's something that will... Once. Only we once. Well, well. It was, we were hippies. We were, yeah. you know, it was like, I wasn't married. Sure. Oh, well, I, yeah, I've seen pictures of you in that, that retrospective for your family, you know, back in the day. I could see why Mr. Brodigan would take a liking to a young Kathleen Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was, again, a, a compliment, I believe. Thank All right. you. All right, let's try something. Well, because we're in kind of uh, in sexual mode here, let's try this. Uh, if we were doing yoga and meditating together, and my energy was unable to rise to a higher chakra because it was stuck at the lowest level in my groin, what advice would you give me on how to get it unstuck? Well, now you're going to lead me down the wicked path. I, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to. But you can choose to rise above I will. Like. All I can say is I do know a really good lube that lasts. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting to that age where, uh, where uh, you know, these products are probably commonly, you know, out there on the market. We can all get access to them. Yeah. We're in our astroglide years. Is that what? No? Uh, I, this is, I'm in the diminishment. You're in the diminishment. Yes. Okay. I've right. been there for years. In 2000, I had a brain aneurysm, a double brain aneurysm, okay. and I had experimental surgery. Oh, they wow. said I... I could die, yeah. and if I didn't have the surgery at all, I would have died. Right. So I feel like all of this time is a gift. Absolutely. And now right. every time anything horrible happens, like family fights and stuff like that, a peace comes into me, and I just think I get to be here for the trouble. Right, right. So that's how I'm dealing with my horrible knees, which I just had the double knee surgery, and you know, pain and all of that stuff. Um, it's uh, the perspective changes if you come that close to dying. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, the, I did a retrospective on a, a poet that I studied with, John Engman, who died of an aneurysm at 46, and so he was not able to, you know, get that time afterwards. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, so you just, you measure your time differently when you are coming to Everything that is different. De yeah. Death is always out there for each of us, but when you when you have to really face it and you know that you're going in on a gurney and you might not you might come out with a toe tag. Yeah. Really high possibility, then it it just shifts you unless you know how to push it down. I didn't know how to push right, it down. Right. Yeah. So, let me give you a poem about pain for the morning and the pain. And of course, this is about chronic pain. For the morning and the pain, bone spur into the nexus. This too is the gift I was saved for. Ripley's should include such quiet human moments of endurance, 
along with those lifetimes of rubber bands amassed or the hugest ball of twine hulked in a garage dwarfing a car. I knew a man who devoted his life to the art of entering pain. The wilderness in him asked for it. It became a faith to endure the insertion of needles, then nails, to breathe them through first pierce, through flesh moved by metal, slowly opened, his mind reeling its opposite, saying, no, this is not how you feel as a child. This is only metal and the perishable, penetrable membrane. I want a talent like that to become approximate to the darling doomed body, but alien to it too. In fairy tales, there would be some kind of spell, some poke pocus shamana hocus, blood pricks would become stolen rubies, tears and ointment for the right of standing beside oneself. Let, let me cultivate the white hot red shot field of this inexorable landscape. Let me welcome each morning with its birds and electrocutions and thank it for arri arriving. Let body, my favorite animal, listen to my pleas. Take the brick of salt I offer, taste it, lie down beside me, and sleep. So you're, you've, you've come to, to make a friend of pain, uh, it sounds like there. That's the, the mode operating. And somebody who's had a, a faith in pain is a kind of way to pull well, yeah, through. well, he was, this guy actually ended up in Ripley's is a kid I knew and he, he was a friend of my son's in high school, but he's he's he became the pe person who can put nails in his yeah. cheek and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I had to adjust to the idea of a double knee surgery. Mm -hmm. And one of my adjustments was there is going to be pain. It's going to hurt like hell, but it's going to be the pain of healing once I get the surgery, instead of the pain of becoming more decrepit, which was yeah. horrible. I mean, I, right. you know I was in pain for years. Right. And uh, I just decided when I went in the hospital, I was either gonna, I, I was gonna make pain my bitch, right. or it would make me its bitch. Right, right. Okay. So I've just like plowed ahead. Yeah, well, you know, uh, do you find that since all of that, you have more of a a focus on issues of the body per se in general, or uh, has this experience made you want to shy away from that territory, seeing as no. how it's so present? Nothing, well, no, I don't shy away from anything. Um. Okay. Well, recently a prominent poet said to me that one way to make oneself engaged with your culture and your era is to willfully make yourself a little uncomfortable. It sounds like you've got plenty of discomfort already, right? <laughs> uh, but do you find that there are any ways that you make yourself uncomfortable in the service of your art? Yes, in fact, I deliberately do it. Um, what I, I'm in a wonderful writing group, which I started, mm -hmm. called the Red Wings. We've been together since uh, 19, uh, I mean 2005, so it'll be 10 years this, is this 2015 now? Yeah, I yeah. believe it still yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. You <laughs> <laughs> have to tap twice on my watch. But sure. um, uh, I, I formed the group by thinking, because I had come back to Sacramento after being gone a long time, 25 years. Oh, really? Okay. And I thought, who, I don't really know these good poets, but if I invited them, who would I want? And mm -hmm. I just very selfishly chose people who, each of whom I thought had 
work, aspects in their work that I wanted more of in my work. Okay. So each one had something different. So, so you were playing the role of the vampire there. I was a vampire. Yeah. And it's been it's fabulous. Thing, yeah. I love it. I love these people very much. Quentin Duvall used to be in sure, the group too, but right, he's right. gone. Um, but uh, for me, even though I have, I don't have an academic background in poetry. It's been in my bones, in my blood, in my marrow, in my brain, in my ears, every yeah. forever, forever as a little kid. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as, for me at least, as I've gotten older, even though I was pretty much weaned on poetry early on in an academic setting, but I find that the, the you know differentiation between academic, non-academic is not really a terribly useful one as you go on further, and that oftentimes the most erudite poets are the ones who are coming from the street and see a lot of things uh, in a lot more complicated ways than poets who work from the academy who oftentimes have you know, much more focus on an emotional territory, but one that doesn't speak to the culture at large very much. They're really not terribly, you know, uh, looking outward from their own experience. Do you find yourselves accidentally writing an Ars Poetica now and then? Yeah, for me personally, I, I don't do that in poems, but then I always have found the kind of essay or critique to be a place where you can take that kind of space on. But, you know, yeah. to each well, other. Well, I mean, this one came it was from an assignment in our group because okay. whoever's the host gives an, a, an assignment. So why a poet? Why a poet? I came alone with nothing but the holy thesaurus of body. I wanted to take everything in, even scrap trash scuttering along in a hurtful wind, even cadaver dogs climbing rubble. Once they whimpered over me, and I rose still alive, and yes, I see the beloved dead, the not much loved dead, and yes, some visit my dreams, some stand beside me as if still, still here. But it is this body, this one, alive in the alive world, that drives me to make songs of the phonic clamor, the eye feast, heart wrench, meat and moist of body, and I weep that I cannot fit it all in. Sand, brick, cathedral, atom and bomb, snail, cloud, every hand, glove, touch. I cannot tell you how ravenous, how sad that I can't reach deep enough, stay long enough to sing it all to you. Mm, perfect. Yeah, that's, that's a very strong impulse, I think, for many poets, is a sense of bringing in that which is neglected and to make poems that are essentially inclusive, right? That's what I hear in that poem yeah. to a large extent. Th this one, I, I wanted to... Oh, that's to enough. No, just, <laughs> <laughs> just four lines yeah, of it. Right. No, no, right. That's all you get. No. Rand ahead. Random lines. This poem has been reprinted many times, but the thing I love about it is this is one of the cool things about the internet is your work is out there in ways you can't imagine. Sure. And my daughter found this on a cooking website yeah. where yeah. people were m making meals based on poems. Yeah, that and, sounds great. And so they, yeah. so this poem, which has had lot, lots of life in the world, um, Canned Food Drive, ended up being the inspiration for these people that we're talking about. Get what you have in the cupboard and have it instead of, you know, 
going yeah. out and buying fancy sure. things. Um, so canned food drive. Did you, you you know what those are? You had them when you were yeah, kids. Well, yeah, yeah. I've still yeah. I've seen them even more recently. We lived in the lucky world, not the far place where flies sipped at eye corners of children too weak to cry. A camera showed that world to us on posters, but we were children. We wanted most to not be those others with their terrible bones. We spoke of them wide-eyed with what we thought was tenderness, but our words came in a different register as if to speak of such betrayal by the grown world could bring a harm of great immensity upon us too. We got to choose from the cupboard. We gave what we hated, mm. beets, peas, mushrooms. Our dreams were not of rice. The moon laid light on our bicycles propped against the porch. Sycamores became our giants standing guard, the overgrown shrub our fort. We thought we understood what was required. Even crouched beneath our desks during air raid drill, we said one prayer for the fear, one for recess. McClellan Air Force Base sent forth big-bellied planes that rattled our windows. Evenings, we took to the streets, shrieking with joy, rode madly fast around the block. We collapsed on the lawn, breathless, the earth cool beneath us and pounding hard as if it had one great heart, as if it was ours. Beautiful. That reminds me, when you talked about that poem being uh, something that was found on a site that had to deal with food and, uh, and poetry and recipes coming together, that's kind of always been one of my fantasy projects, is to see food or other kinds of you know, practices come together with poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's something I've never gotten around to doing. Do you, do you have a fantasy project that if, if you could just, you know, snap your fingers and make it happen in terms of injecting poetry into the world? I do. Yeah. And I, this, I, I, got, I had this desire once coming home from AWP, which I couldn't attend this year, but um, long before they were doing flash mobs, yeah. I wanted to get a tribe of poets to go into the airport where people are sitting waiting for their planes right. and just start you know start reading a poem aloud and all and then all chime in and read the poem great poems right, right. great poems and yeah. I, and i think that it's it's just as valid as playing your music your instruments and singing and yeah. all of that stuff i would love to have a flash mob poet flash, flash poetry mob. flash mob yeah well anymore awp's book fair seems to be like that all the time right but <laughs> I'm, but but I, airports would be an interesting place because like you have a captive to, audience. Yeah, I would like it to be people who would n normally not listen to poetry. Right, right. Sure, sure. No, that's a big difference between yeah. one context and the other. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like, uh, you know, we'll have to work on that for L.A. or something. Are you going to go to L.A.? Or? I am if okay. I'm not dead. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comeback for that one. I'm always yep. trying to uh, hold hold, hold it off. The Grim Reaper I say back. if yeah. you if you see it out, say it out loud, it's less likely to want to get you. Yeah, well, you know, or you're bringing it in. I don't know, one of the two. I've heard it both ways. For people who are you know shamans, they say, oh, don't say that thing that you know because you might be inviting it in. But this is a, a couple, two, three times death has made its uh, its appearance here. Is that something that uh, you know you find that 
calms you in some way to do that? Or I think I guess you just addressed it a little bit. Is it is it more present on your mind than you think it, it is, was in fact, years ago? In the book, I, which I did not remember to bring, I, yeah. um, I have a poem called, it's a quote from my kids, why do you talk about death so much? Yeah, right. Or why do you think about death so much? Um, right. But here's a birth poem. Let's do the birth poem. Yeah, this is from this is from a long time ago, probably thirty-five years ago, um, and I just found it this morning when I was looking for my book. Um, birth poem for men. We should have two or three, shouldn't we? Imagine that beneath your penis is a ring of bone, a circle like fingers in an O, meaning a-okay, just right, perfecto. And imagine that you are full of life, heavy with it, stuffed. It is almost too much. It is too much. Another whole life inside the original you barely have time for. So let it go. Lie down and breathe to the pulse of your bones opening, great force of insistent flesh pushing out of you. Breathe quickly and rest every chance you get and breathe again. Your mouth becomes dry, and sometimes it seems your whole life is spent just breathing between pains. Yes, there is pain. Of course there is pain when one whole body passes through the socket of another. But between pains, you feel you are doing the right thing, the only thing you can do. Now you want to push. So push. Be careful. Watch. Through the widening hole of your amazing body, comes something you recognize. It is yours, but it is not you. Sticky and shocked by air and light, it jolts to its own life. Lie back, rest, for now it is enough that you did it, that you even imagined it. Mm. What was our safe word again, Kathleen? <laughs> Pain cheater, wasn't pain it? Cheater. Something like that. Yeah, I'm gonna call pain cheater on okay. that, that poem. Well, I, I'll suck it all back out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Uh, you know, on that poem, it's, it kind of brings me back to the question I had earlier in some respects, but I kind of want to poke at it because it's something that I'm interested in a little bit, and that's the uh, differentiation between um, you know trying to evoke curiosity or invite intimacy. And it seems in that poem you kind of do both because you have this imaginative uh, space that you posit with respect to this, the male giving birth, and mm -hmm. yet it really becomes something that circles back around and is about really a, a stand-in for your own emotional life as a woman giving birth. Is right. that accurate? Is that fair to say? Well, that's fair to say, but, I, but actually the impulse that, for me to write it was someone at a writing thing many, many years ago, Port Townsend. We were all hanging around and having a little uh, recreational experience and some... For, for, for those of you who weren't here, there was a, a, a toke movement uh, put into play there, so I just oh, wanted to clarify oh, that. Oh, that was just an itch. Oh, that was just an itch. I'm sorry. I misread that. But this one sweet young man who I really liked said, I am so jealous of women because I would love to know what it's like to give birth. And that yeah. was my assignment. I, a birth poem for men. Yeah, right. Well, you know. Uh, I, I, I passed a, a pretty good-sized kidney stone, called it Bucky for, one, for a while, <laughs> but I don't think it really came close. Uh, yeah, uh, here's one that's maybe a little bit more towards the craft area, and it's one that I'm also interested in, 
is uh, how do you think about sound in your lines? Uh, are you kind of an, in a syllable and stress counter? Uh, you try to measure how the sounds of individual words bounce off of each other and then think about it as a musical phrase, or do you have some other intuitive approach to how you use sound in a line? I, I really want to have good sound. I rarely write in form with yeah. end rhyme, unless one of my darling women in the group give, gives it an assignment, and then I kick and scream my way through the poem. But um, I think if you listen to any of these, you will hear the internal rhyme, and yeah. it's very important to me. Yeah. It's like you can't you can't be a hundred percent Irish and not look for the music I would and the sound. So. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, to me, the thing that's interesting is is we all as poets seem to want to invoke and embrace sound, and yet there's apart from this kind of cadenced approach that we have from classical meter English, uh, it's it's very difficult for people to speak about how they want sound to work in their poems. And, uh, you know, for me, I think you almost have to go back to a kind of musical notation to talk about these things, because just to count stresses and syllables doesn't seem to be sophisticated enough in terms of the way we want it to have its, you know, emotional effect on people. Uh, so, but I, I think the only way we eventually kind of talk about it are, are intuitive ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so I was just wondering if you had a particular pet way of speaking about sound in your lines. Well, one thing I do, I, when, I've, when I write everything, I just write and try to get the poem into a shape that will possibly live in the world as a poem. And then I have two craft things that I do. One is I go through it and I sweep it. I sweep the thes out mm -hmm. and the uhs out and get as rid, rid of as many articles as possible to tighten it. Yeah. And then I start looking at the sounds, and I look at if, if a word that means something close to what I have would also echo a word four lines above, right. then I change it so, I, so that the ring of that sound is in the, in the stanza. So I'm, I always look for sound connections. And it might re, re end up in a, in a phonic clamor then. Yes. You <laughs> yes. mentioned that, and I thought that was a nice little sonic touch. Is that something that you remember? You know, tweaking uh, on second or third time through that particular phrase, or that—that that was a poem that gushed out of me. Yeah. So. Yeah. That no. One, you didn't think about that. But one. I think like that. I mean, I think in passionate language. Yeah. So, except when I'm boring. So, do, are you reciting these in your head, or you're playing them out in your head, or do they kind of just come out in the steady stream? When I start working on something, and I and I know it's. It's wanting to be a poem. I carry it around in my head, mm -hmm. and it it works on me. You know, I, I I will take walks back when I could walk, um, but it it, I, it gets in me, and I'm taken by it, and I sort of can't I can't abandon it because it'd be like killing something. Yeah, might still turn out crappy, but I do it anyway. Well, how do, how do you, this comes back to a kind of earlier question is, you know, you were talking about mediocrity versus something that pleases you. Uh, for me, I think, and for a lot of poets, there's a lot of difficulty in making that determination between when it's, when it's gone beyond the bridge and it's something that you no longer want to claim or when you still want to keep pounding on it. I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, well, you know, when do you let a poem go then in terms of sound or meaning or whatever criteria you're looking at? When does it please you enough that you say, okay, I've worked on you enough, 
go into the world and do what you need to do. I have let many go too soon. Mm. And they've been published, and you can't take that. Well, you cannot call it back and cancel half a word of it. But Some people do. They move it in a slightly different form if they put it into book form, but whatever. I know what you're saying. Right. Well, right. you know, Gerald Stern told me that he, when he, ever, his books, because he's prolific and, right, right. and he, when his books are reissued, he, he works on every poem in it and rewrites it, you know, changes things. So if you live long enough, you can keep writing the same poems better. Right. right. <laughs> but I'm not famous and I'm not going to have that happen. So. Right. Uh, here's a, a kind of fun, crazy one. See what you can do with it. Uh, if you were writing a poem in the voice of a barbershop quartet, which voice would you be? Bass, lead, baritone, or tenor? I'm all about the bass, but the bass, no <laughs> treble. <laughs> yeah, all right. A any particular reason why you pick bass? Is that something that a register that, in that appeals to well, you? Well, just because I wanted to make a joke with that yeah. song. But, um, but I like, I like the round, dark, woody depth of it. Um, it's just so, so depth is something that you yeah. think you would, it, that appeals to you. Yes. Yeah. Although I have very shallow, vapid poems. I mean, that's another thing. I don't thing. think so. I that's mean, you, well, you I, you have different modes, right? I uh, that's another thing. Uh, uh, when we go through the books that because we at the group we um, we always everyone has been assigned a book to read between our meetings, and so that we've all read the same book and we sit and critique it. And some people really don't like lighter poems in yeah. the collection. Well, I think you need it. I think you have to be silly. And I, you know, I, 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 I don't mind. I mean, if it's a successful poem, I don't mind if it's a hoot. Right. No, I, well, that's as hosting for many years at Poetry Center, and I'm sure Ensa'a could say the same thing about his experience. Uh, you know, if, there, if somebody isn't making at least one attempt at humor during the evening, then, you know, that, that reading has been something that probably missed out on its emotional opportunities for how it needs to appeal to the crowd. Well, um, yeah, and also when you're doing it in a reading, you don't, want even, you don't want to be Debbie Downer and just read all these deep contemplative poems without something yeah. to show contrast. Right. Well, you would think not, although isn't that the way a lot of times books are put together? In that's American how they poetry? do it now, and yeah. that's why it's really hard to get, because I am so eclectic. I have, right. I'm right. all over the place. Right. You know, I have why I love oysters. I have weather that I wrote after the disaster in Katrina, and uh, all these different things. I see one here called variegated. That's kind of what we're talking about yeah. in some respects. Yes. You got to make a, a variegated performance? You want me to read it? I don't know. I was leaning that way. If you want okay. to, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, if you, you can you can evoke your safe word here if you want to. <laughs> I'll read it because it's a different po type of poem from my usual poems. Good. Yeah. And um, it actually won a prize in Two Rivers Review. I think I got a thousand dollars for it. Wow. I'm oh, trying to remember. This is this is the thousand dollar poem, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. But, <laughs> but my husband Eddie didn't like it. He usually he says it yeah. didn't ring his chimes. Yeah. And he usually is right about that, but right. I was glad to say, <laughs> sometimes I'm right. right. Variegated. I used to fear nothing was large enough to hold me. Now, nothing small enough. 
though sound can be a container of sorts. For instance, one short passage in the Mockingbird's exhausted, exhaustive litany. I waited for it to come around again, and it did. Damselflies coupled in frenzied clouds above the pond shimmer as if a bride ripped off her veil and flung it there. Blackberries surge at the edge, dense, and some say an invasion. Willows drape and flutter, hold off blunt sun in all but the smallest winking holes. The watery sound of tires on asphalt flows through. It too is a music I've grown used to. Once we had no names for things that turned us this way and that, lulled or sparked panic, which I now can call kill deer in the bulldoze lot, staccato, high, skittering and fierce, hopelessly. To be here again as one who knew no names, who reached into the tangle regardless of thorns, thin blooms of blood on the arm tasted like one good thing, the juice the other, stains on hands and mouth deep and good too, marked us as ragged saints. Seen from high above, our heads might have looked like variegated blossoms bobbing together and sometimes alone. What if the word landscape means danger, appropriation in the mind of the takers? Yet look how peaceful the golf course, our made thing, curved and clean, smooth, soothing, surface a green infant. And yes, I admit, pretty. I could, that's that's at least a thousand, maybe a two thousand dollar poem. <laughs> I like that one. That's very very nice. I, I noticed one thing about that piece, though. You're you're invoking music there, and it just happens to be you know music is something that's very varied, oftentimes, right? Mm -hmm. And and yet it seems to me one of the complaints that we're making about poetry is that it seems to be kind of monochromatic and not like music. You know, if the musician comes in, it's understood that he plays a fast one or she plays a slow one and you mix it up, you have sad, you have all kinds of ranges of emotion and tempo and rhythm. And yet, uh, you know, very infrequently will you find poets who want to go to that particular place. Uh, in fact, you know, recently I, I, well, just in Minneapolis, I got up and I, I sang a song in the middle of this reading and everybody was like, what, what the hell is he doing here? This is a poetry reading. You're not supposed to be singing a song. I know Lawrence is with me over here, uh, wondering what's going on with, with music not coming into the poetry space. That's crazy. But uh, yeah, it seems to be crazy to me. But uh, in, in the same respect, I think you're, you're kind of getting at that in that poem, though, is that music, it, like poetry, should have a certain kind of variety to it. And yet, infrequently in American poetry, we never seem to embrace that aspect of it. So is there something in, in terms of your own performance of poems that, that brings you close to music? You ever had a desire to go and do music during your performances? Actually, I, when I turned 40, and I'm now 71, almost mm -hmm. 72, uh, when I turned 40, I pro promised myself that every year I would do something I'd been afraid of. First year, I learned how to swim in deep water. It was great. It was uh, the class was taught by this 
pretty dikey woman with long acrylic nails and a big whistle, like a sergeant woman. And all the people in the class except me were Asian young men. Asian young men. And But I learned to swim, and I learned yeah. to love it. So that's, each year I did something I'd always been afraid of. And two years ago, I took singing lessons. Ah, okay. Because everyone in our family always says, you guys sing terribly, you because we sing our... <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, we, it's true. It's, yeah. it's our brother's fault. When we right. have a family song, we do the big John and Sparky song, made a uh, change for our, our family. And um, I always try to help the tempo, but the Danny and Michael, today is the birthday we yeah. wonder for They drag it down, drag it down. So people come to it and they say, you guys sound terrible. So I decided I was going to go take singing lessons. It's one of the things I'd always been afraid of. And I did. Yeah. Uh, Dee Dee, um, who lives up, up Folsom Boulevard, uh, is a beautiful woman and um, has a wonderful voice. And she taught me how to find my place okay. in, in voice. So I'm not going to get on the stage, but... Yeah. Speaking of stage, I would love to, you know, that's another thing. And one of the years I, I uh, had always been afraid of being on the stage, so I took an acting class. Right, right. The next year, I d dared myself to audition for a play. It was at Palomar Co College. And I, I just thought that my deal is I have to audition. I, I didn't have to get it. I got the damn role. Uh-oh. Yeah. And then I had to be in a play in front of like 400 people every night. And right, you right. Know, but it was so fun. It was like ecstatic. Ooh. It was like it was that thing of having an audience out there. And I was I was a comic character. I sure. was Chick Boyle in Crimes of the Heart. And I got to take off my pantyhose and put some new ones on in front of the audience. And it was just it was is, very. Is there, is there video of that? Or? <laughs> But it was so, I mean, I can't tell you how much the, I mean, I never knew, I mean, like, it felt like sex. Mm -hmm. because oh. of, I mean, it felt oh. like that, that gr great response right, coming sure. to you, you know? Absolutely. It was just fabulous. Yeah, no, I, I think being on the stage, there's, there's that uh, aspect of it being you know, overtaking you and being a, an aphrodisiac or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Kind yeah, kind of like that. In fact, I just went this week this last week with Eddie to uh, San Francisco and saw um, Book of Mormon. Oh, okay, And that right. made me kind of ache. I thought, boy, what if I chose the wrong thing. I shouldn't have been a poet. I should have really gone into acting. Oh, well, you know, but there's so much, I think, especially now, that's moving towards the performative. I think that in some respects, many people treat poems, poetry as a kind of you know, venue for uh, monologues, one-act plays in some respects. Well, I don't think, I think I, I'm, I miss that boat, you know. Like I'm not. I'm the never. I'm still, never. The boat is still uh, moored at the dock, perhaps. I'm never going to be a rap poet or you know make this shit up as I go along. Yeah. I mean I, the. Uh, pardon my English. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I. There's. There are other ways in necessarily than to kind of just be a kind of uh, you know second city comedian about it where you're just making it up. That's as you another go thing I am going to right. try out. For, gonna I'm going to go to a comedy club. Yeah. Yes. Right. I know it might suck big time, but I am going to do it before I die. I hope. 
Yep, there it is. There it is again. What is that? Four or five deaths we've had here today. <laughs> <laughs> Ding, everybody! That, yep, that's a death over there. Yeah. Okay, I hear you. We, ha you have been a witness to the poetry scene in Sacramento for many years, and you yourself uh, were instrumental in putting together the reading series at Barnes and Noble. For when I first came to town, it was a very successful series. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you have any notions about different eras in the Sacramento poetry scene? And what do you remember from that particular time when you ran that series uh, as being you know, some of the most fulfilling aspects of that series? Well, just like my desire to have uh, people read in the airport. Yeah, <laughs> or to, right. You know, or, or a flash mob of poets. Um, I, I loved bringing poetry into a place where people might accidentally start hearing it, people shopping in the store. Right, right, yeah. um, and, and I worked really hard. Uh, that's before there was no cell phone or anything like that. I worked really hard to put good people together and uh, get a good art audience and did. Oh, yeah. It was, it was all the rage at that point in time. I remember at that juncture, I uh, had just come to town and... You know, that was the one place that I wanted to go see a lot of the better poets in town, in my, my opinion. So. so the thing is, I was, I did not have a poetry training. I didn't, I, I took three uh, classes from Dennis Schmitz, but not poetry classes. Mm -hmm. Survey of, of foreign literature and stuff like that. Um, and I, I left town when I was, I forget how old, 32. So that was before the Poetry Center had started. Mm, okay. So there, I missed that whole blooming, and right. I was amazed. I used to have to go to Berkeley or San Francisco to hear poetry, right. except mm. the occasional crappy things that were here. But um, when I got back 28 years later, here it was, this not only the city itself and the restaurants and everything blossoming all over, but the poetry scene so lively. Right. And the Poetry Center, so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but I was gone for a lot of it. I missed it. I missed the, the rolling the, of it. The flowering years, Yes, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. But that's okay, because it was like coming home and getting a big plate of fried chicken you weren't expecting. Right, sure, sure. Well, and you, you've got to add on to that in many respects with the series that you did. You know? Yeah. So along those same lines, if you were to uh, have a, a fantasy project or if you were to if you were absolute ruler with unlimited wisdom and funds what kind of change for poetry in the Sacramento area would you make would that change necessarily be geared towards putting a more popular face on poetry I have mixed feelings about the popular face on poetry okay. and this is the curmudgeon side of me yeah I, I told I, you we were going to get it I feel uh, I mean I not maybe maybe it's because I I had the knee surgery and then I spent I suddenly was looking on uh, uh, Facebook a lot which I never used to, but if I if I clicked on every poem in, on Facebook by people I know people I like people who are good people who are putting other po poets up, I would lose hours of my life yeah. just reading those things. And then reading about their awards and stuff like that and and you know there's something so so narcissistic about Facebook. You yeah. know, some people, I swear to God, they would put 
describe their bowel movements every day if they could. I've seen those posts. You have? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, no. I'm, but, I'm, um, they, but, I mean, so the part of me that feels, I guess, modest about poetry is don't overdo it. Don't, right. don't publish your... Well, there's a saying, I forget who said it, but um, that, the, the, that the, the good drives out the great. Yeah. So there are a lot of competent, good poets. I'm probably one of them. Um, but I, I sort of don't want to do this lots and lots of poems in, in, the ch in the hopes that maybe something great will rise in me. Right. Um, and I know that was a rambling thing to say. No, 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 that's, I, I understand it. Well, for, I mean, as someone who posts a, a, a fairly good number of poems on uh, Facebook, I would have to say my main impetus is to just thank the person who may have put it in a magazine, right. which right. I think is good form to do that. And it's changing. The way the, way the things are changing is now that the poets, if they get published or they're in a magazine, they... Like you say, you 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 you're feel like you're, you you owe to do the, yeah. the you know they have to promote their own stuff. Sure. So this you can't get away from that part of the narcissism. But sometimes I just look at I pick up a book and I open it and I, look, I think too many words. Yeah. Too many words. It's just like everybody be quiet a little bit. Right. Right. In fact, I wrote a poem. Um, a long time ago, called "Today, Please, No Poetry." Should I read that? Yeah, because you can have good. you can have both impulses: more poetry and less. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe we should end with this one too. We should. So this is this is probably thirty-five or forty years old. Today, please, no poetry, no nuance, shadow, or light. I'm so tired of everything meaning something. Let me leave the curtains drawn, stay in my robe all day and watch all my children, the edge of night, one life to live. Let the music say, this bud's for you. You deserve a break today. I do, you know. I'm cursed just looking at the laden bookshelf, noticing sanctuary leans against as I lay dying. I want to lie all day on this couch without remembering that my children are grown and gone, their beautiful faces moving in rooms hundreds of miles from he, here, that last week my beloved sojourner died here in my arms, and I laid her on moss deep in Santa Cruz woods. Nature is terrible, and I don't like weather that reminds me of anything, but it always does. I'm doomed, you see, to get up and go down each day trying to make something of it. Mm, beautiful. And what I really appreciate, nobody, you can't really see this on the radio, is that when Kathleen reads, she's reading it right into my eyes and making eye contact with me. And that's a lost art, because in terms of audiences or just reading it to a single person, I think so many people just put their head down and don't realize that you know, yeah. there's somebody else yeah, out there. Yeah, you're right. So I appreciate that. Uh, it's very seductive, very seductive. Oh. Yeah. You have a thing for old ladies? <laughs> sure. Oh, maybe. Oh, sure. Old ladies, old dogs, you know, birds that have fallen out of their nest, the whole, the whole nine yards. It's a wide, wide-ranging erotic palette. Well, thank you, Kathleen. And uh, our cups have been drained, so we'll turn it back over to Ensa.